Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. By the time this goes out, we may have gone beyond 2020, this horrendous year we are living in. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each episode, I check in with a very special guest. We have a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. I have interviewed plenty of guests who have written their own books. My special guest for this episode, Venters, comes from the world of publishing, who writes and talks about books for a living. Her name is Kate Bagley, and she's the co-founder of Up North Books. The podcast discusses all things Northern literature and celebrates it so more people can read about this varied and often underrepresented part of the UK. Dealing with life's challenges, the importance of managing your physical and mental health, self-care, FOMO and more are on the menu for today's pod. This is how our check-in went. Kate, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thanks for joining me virtually all the way from Lytham St Anne's. We're recording this just before Christmas, so we're all probably not in the best mood or mental health state at the moment, but how are you and how's everything going your end? Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. Everything on my end, I think it's strange because of the announcements that happened yesterday. I was really looking forward to Christmas and now I feel like the mood's all kind of shifted a little bit, but kind of in a bit of a weird no man's land at the moment, but hopefully in a few days we'll be more clear about kind of where we're going with Christmas. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's I just use the phrase surviving a lot when people ask me how I am. I'm not great. I'm not horrendous. Yeah, you're literally just in a state of survival mode. I feel you. (laughs) That's pretty much it, to be honest. I've interviewed a few people who've written books, but never one who discusses books for a living. So I'm really excited for this one. Shall we just get started? Let's start the pod, Kate, by discussing you and your co-founder, Beth's baby, the Up North Books podcast. So why don't you tell me why you started it, how you and Beth met, and then maybe what inspired you to give it a go? So me and Beth met about, I think it was a few years ago now, it might have been like 2018. And we're both from Blackpool, from near Blackpool. And Penguin Random House do this kind of, almost like a conference almost, for disadvantaged areas to kind of explain publishing to them and they were holding one in Blackpool and we both got places I'd never met her before never heard of her and we both basically got paired in the same group I think it was and we met there basically and it was just it was really nice to meet somebody from my area that was kind of interested in all the same things that I was because like I didn't know anybody who wanted to go into publishing until I kind of went to uni So we met and that was really nice and we kind of stayed in touch a little bit over social media. Nothing too much. We weren't best friends or anything, but we just kept in touch. And then one day, I can't even remember when it was, just after the March lockdown, I think, Beth kind of reached out to me and just basically asked like how I feel about podcasts and that she was wanting to start like a Northern Books podcast and if I wanted to join because she was looking for somebody to join her and I was just like why not <laughs> and it kind of just went from there really. How long have you been doing the pod and maybe what have been 
the challenges you've experienced doing it so far? So we started, I think our first episode that we recorded was in August, so it's not been that long. So we started in August and I think it's been pretty smooth sailing so far with all of the actual recording. I think the problems that we've kind of faced would be, and you might be able to relate to this, probably like taking on too much work because we didn't realise how to pace ourselves yet. At the beginning, we kind of scheduled a lot of content that in reality, we kind of had to push back a little bit. So yeah, I think that was probably the biggest challenge, kind of learning what we could take on and what was realistic. Coming fresh out of university, I imagine you didn't have a lot of presenting experience or editing experience before you started the podcast, or, or Beth herself either. How did you learn on the job and did you take inspiration from any other radio presenters, TV presenters you might have watched or listened to either in other publishing podcasts or wider? So yeah, you're right. Like I didn't have any kind of presenting experience. Neither did Beth. Beth has editing experience, luckily for me, because I was clueless. But I'm quite a confident person, so it wasn't too bad. It's always a little bit odd talking to a microphone. But I don't know if initially I took any kind of inspiration from anybody in particular. But I think as I realized where we wanted the podcast to go, then you definitely kind of draw in from people that you enjoy listening to. So like the High Low podcast was like a really big one for me, for like a podcast that I think is really engaging to listen to. And there's a books podcast called What Page Are You On or something like that. And they're really good, but I only started listening to them most recently, but we've definitely dragged a lot of inspiration from the way that they do their podcasts. Can you talk me through the story behind that first ever pod episode you did? What nerves or anxieties did you have before doing it? And how did you feel once you'd done it and put it out there? Yeah, so our first ever podcast episode was, I think it was just like an introduction to us and a a few books that we enjoyed. And I remember being really nervous. I think we re-recorded the intro about five or six times, whereas now we just kind of wing it and go with it. I was definitely nervous. It feels like the first time you get in front of a camera, really, but it's not a camera. It's like your own voice. But once I kind of realized that there's a whole editing process behind it and you can get things wrong and it's fine, like you just cut it out and nobody will realize, then it's been fine since then. But I remember being really anxious on the first one and quite nervous about it. I think that when you realize that you don't have to do everything in one take, it makes everything a lot easier for sure. Along the way, I'm sure there have been maybe mistakes you've made here and there. Is there any one mistake you feel comfortable sharing that you've done doing the pod? And most importantly, so our listeners can normalize making mistakes. What did you learn from it? I always get the names of authors or publishers wrong. Like always, I keep mixing them up. And sometimes I realize way after we've recorded it and we're editing it and I'm just talking about the complete wrong subject and it's just not right at all. I think the first time that that happened because we didn't really know how to re-record and kind of put the audio in, we would kind of scrap that. But then now it's got to a point where, so like in our last episode that we recorded, it's not up yet. But I think I made like a mistake of an author's name or something. And then I just corrected myself halfway through. But we kept in the original audio rather than kind of merging so that it sounded correct. Because it's just a genuine mistake and it's absolutely fine. And if you're talking about lots of things, lots of books at the same time and lots of authors, you're going to get confused. Uh, And I think it's fine to make mistakes and no one's job's on the line it's fine. People understand. Was part of the reason you started the pod because you did find some snobbery or maybe stigma amongst working class authors from the north of England and areas like Lancashire, Yorkshire and the northeast? Or was it something deeper than that? 
Well, I was mainly interested in starting it mainly because Beth kind of put it on a platter in front of me and I was really interested in it. But I think that we're both really passionate about kind of whose stories get published and whose stories get told and who's in charge of making the decisions on letting those stories kind of get out into the world. And there are so many amazing authors who are from the north of England and who represent the north of England. And rather than just focusing on kind of like the London-centric publishing sphere, we kind of just wanted a place that kind of celebrates that. And we definitely don't know everything. We don't know all the books and all the authors, but we just like talking about it and making other people aware of maybe what they're reading and what they're listening to. Your last episode, I'm right in saying you got your first author on the pod. She was called Mim Skinner, and she was talking about her book called Jailbirds, which was about her experiences working in a woman's prison and running a class to improve prisoners' confidence, life skills, and other educational opportunities. How did that interview come about? How did you have to prepare for that pod as opposed to your regular episodes with Beth? And was that a big moment for you and the pod itself? So the interview came around. I can't actually remember fully how it happened, but I was in contact with somebody who helped to run Durham Book Festival. And we were basically just having a chat about something. And she suggested for us to have a Northern author on the podcast. It's kind of like a collaboration between Durham Book Festival and our podcast. And we were really keen about it. We were like, yes, please send anybody our way. And they suggested Mim. So we had a quick read into her and she was just really interesting because she's not just an author. She's obviously like a social activist and things. And we were like, oh, that's really cool to talk about, especially because she does lots of work in the Northeast. So to kind of bring in like real life social activist in the North, as well as writing about writing. So that's how it came about. The way that we prepared for it was definitely different because we were kind of bringing another personality onto the podcast it was the first time having like another voice on there we'd only really just got used to each other being on there but the way that we prepared was we researched everything about Mim everything that she does at the cafe that she helps to run we researched her book other interviews she's done so that we weren't kind of hashing over lots of the same kind of information so that was definitely a different way to prepare for it but it was a really big moment for us, I think, just to have somebody else on it and for somebody to be interested in getting interviewed by us. So that was really good. I just want to go back to that classism aspect now, because one question you asked Mim was about classism in publishing and how working class people can be often excluded from the publishing sector. You wrote a semi-viral tweet about this, which we'll discuss later on in the pod as well. Did that question derive from your own personal experiences? And if so, how has that affected you and your mental health? On the podcast, we are interested in class and creative industries as like a subject together. Um, we wanted to ask Mim because she was telling the stories of these women that are in this prison. And she's basically like platforming women that are very excluded from the publishing world. And she's kind of using her privilege really to kind of uphold the stories of these women that are in the prison and kind of why they're there and the good work that they're doing inside and kind of what led them to be inside the prison and I think that both me and Beth when we've kind of tried to get into publishing definitely found it hard because we are both working class and northern and there's a lot more complicated aspects to getting into publishing that I will never face 
but it's one that we want to talk to people about and get to the bottom of why certain stories are told and why it's interesting when less mainstream stories start to get told. What impact does doing the pod have on you or your mental health? Is it routine, for example, enjoyment, making new connections to people, possibly helping a career in publishing in the long term or, or perhaps something even deeper? I think it's all of the above with that. When I first finished uni, so I graduated in July, I think. And it's really hard when you're kind of in a pandemic applying for jobs. You feel like you have no control over where you're going. Like I was just getting rejection after rejection. And so starting my own project, what I had control over was like so good for me. It didn't even start as that, but it really did become something that was routine. It felt productive it felt like I was building up skills that I had control over and I wasn't relying on anybody else to do it so I think it's kind of that it really really did help my mental health with feeling like I always had something to be doing or preparing for or thinking about and it's a really creative thing to do and to kind of plan out episodes and read books for it and prepare for interviews it it all just felt really gave me lots of momentum in a time when I felt like I lost it. Can I ask you what impact reading books themselves have on your mental health as well, Kate? I'm sure I know the answer to this as you started a podcast about books, but I think the listeners will be really interested to know. Reading has always been a really positive experience in my life. So I've, I've always been a reader. I didn't kind of come to it late in the game. It kind of always from when I was very young, I've always had a book in my hand. I think the mental health aspect would be escapism. I think lots of people kind of feel that. And also reading a book and feeling like you relate to a character or relate to a story or anything. And you can just say, oh, like, I'm not alone. I feel the same as that character does. So I'm not alone in this. I think lots of people feel like that as well. And I think reading can also be really good to just kind of get away from the real world for a moment. And even watching TV or being on your phone kind of feels very like attached to the real world, whereas reading just completely takes you out of it, which I think is really good for kind of your mental state. What feedback have you got from people doing the pod so far? Is there one comment or moment that stands out that means a lot to you and your mental health or has given you maybe a confidence boost or some validation? We've had really positive feedback on it, which has been really great. The first episode that we put out, we thought that nobody would be interested, but we actually got like hundreds of retweets on it and we reached like a thousand followers within like 24 hours. Um, It was kind of like a crazy first introduction to the podcast. And I think that was really good for encouraging us to keep doing it. People were interested. There was clearly like a gap in what people were wanting to listen to. So that was really nice. I think standout comments would be from the actual authors that we talk about if they've listened to us talk about their book and kind of come back and said oh like I've loved this or thank you for mentioning us that's really great and we love that. How do you plan to take the pod forward in the future? Are there any particular dream guests that you want to get on or maybe even bigger plans you can share with me as a little vent exclusive? Oh taking it forward in the future. I think it's really hard because We never really thought about it in that kind of way. It was just something really fun that we were doing at the time. But we definitely do want to keep continuing growing it. We're really interested in author interviews. We really like doing that and asking them questions about their writing journey and getting published and things like that. So I think we want to kind of get into more in-depth author interviews over the future. In terms of dream guests, I don't really know. I think 
anybody, like anybody who comes on and just has a really interesting discussion with us. Because if you expect like certain people to come on, they might not gel as well. I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's anybody in particular. We do have lots of interesting and really exciting things lined up for 2021, but no exclusives to give yet. And for any listeners, Kate, who want a podcast to get some new and exciting book recommendations and some interviews, where can they find you on streaming platforms and social media? With streaming platforms, we are on pretty much most of them. So like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, all the good stuff. And our Twitter username is UpNorthPod. And that will have the links to kind of where everybody can listen to us. We've talked about Kate, the podcast presenter, book lover. I want to dive a bit deeper now and talk about your own journey, Kate. So I ask this question to every guest first. Talk me through your early life, your childhood and teenage years in Lytham St. Anne's. And looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Kate we meet here? So I had like a really happy childhood kind of growing up in Lytham. I would say my first kind of mental health experiences definitely started in high school. I think quite a lot of people feel the same way when reality starts to set in with exams and thinking about the future you're suddenly not a child anymore I would say probably 14 was when I remember things kind of cranking up a notch and I was always so stressed like I just felt very stressed about my exams and my future and you were supposed to be kind of deciding the A-levels you wanted to do so you needed to do well in certain GCSEs and I always wanted to do really well in my exams so I think that was probably the first time I'd ever experienced any stress slash anxiety slash low part in my life was about that age. Everyone aged 18 to 26 right now maybe even younger or maybe even slightly older had that university be all and end all culture drilled into them. I had it a lot when I was growing up in northeast London. Everyone was majorly stressed about getting into university because no one really saw any other options apart from that, especially when none of us didn't really have a lot of work experience. Do you think that was a problem for you or you felt that pressure? Definitely. I don't think it was in a way where I know lots of people that I'm friends with kind of only went to university because there didn't seem to be any other option. I knew I wanted to go genuinely, but it was very much you were push down one path and exams were the be all and end all whereas when you kind of get out of that and you look back you always want to say to everybody like it's not the be all and end all there are so many other paths and especially like you were saying with work experience it's so hard to come about work experience that it almost seems like you have to go into education and get the degree under your belt or the a levels or any of that because otherwise you have no credentials to kind of go into that when in the real world experience actually means so much more you grew up in a nuclear family, had quite a happy childhood, as you just said. You told me off air that you were quite a dorky teenager, in quotes. Is this where you think your love of books began, from that place of intellectual curiosity, do you think? I started reading very young, as I said. My parents always kind of read to me. I never had a TV in my room, like none of that, just kind of read books all the time. And my parents always really encouraged it. They would buy me books for birthdays and Christmas and make it seem like it was always this really exciting gift. So yeah, I would say it was an intellectual curiosity, but also to me, like reading a book's like watching TV in your head. It's not a pretentious thing. Like I genuinely read books because I love them. Nothing necessarily highbrow. I wasn't 13 reading Jane Austen. I was reading stuff that I actually wanted to read. Yeah. So I guess it was a mixture of intellectual curiosity, but also 
genuine love for it. Your parents separated when you were 15 years old, if I'm correct in saying. How do you look back on that period and the adjustment period afterwards? For any child who's had a happy growing up period, their parents separating is probably like the first hit home about the real world. And that was definitely for me. Like I said, I did have a really like privileged and happy upbringing. When I was in my teens, you're at school, your whole body's completely changing. Like it's a bit of a crazy time. So it was definitely really hard. And I was kind of going through exam process, going towards my GCSEs. It was a lot at the time. And looking back now, it all kind of seems really far away. And it's it's quite hard to talk about it because it's almost like you don't remember it. You just feel like a completely separate person. But yeah, I do remember it was really hard. And when I hear that other people's parents are separating, you've got to think like about how you would feel really and how it, it doesn't really represent anything except that your family's breaking up. It was quite hard to deal with. But now it seems really far away from it. And I, I know that I've come out the other side completely fine. But yeah, definitely. It was a really tough time at that point. After that, you moved out of your family home when you were 16. So during your GCSEs, I mean, that's that's a pretty big step to do at that age, maybe because I was so independent back then when I was a kid and at the back end of a very long period of trauma. But did you see it as a big step? I mean, that is quite, that's quite a big step to do at 16. It was definitely a big step. I think I saw it as like a positive change in my life at that point. So I had lived in that house my whole life. And there was a part of me that was sad and kind of leaving that behind and what that represented. But I felt at that point, we all needed some kind of new step and new change to kind of get out of the position that we were in. So it was really positive. And I still live in the house that me and my mum moved into when we moved out of my childhood house. So yeah, it was a big step, but it was always a positive step, just a hard positive step. Let's fast forward to university now. So you studied at Newcastle University, which like my alma mater Sussex was definitely a part of uni. Tell me a bit about your university experience. Did you indulge of any of that or did you chuck yourself into your books or a bit both? A bit of both really because my town's quite sheltered. I lived quite a sheltered life for a while. The closest big town we have is Blackpool and that's not exactly, it's just Stagdu Central. <laughs> it's not a very exciting place to go out or kind of explore. So moving to a city was so nice and I loved Newcastle. I would move back there if I could. And yeah, I definitely kind of indulged in the party side of it. I made really good friends while I was there. And it kind of taught me that you can both have fun and work really hard and come out with a really good degree. Because I think with my experience of exams and things before, it had always been like you crack down, no fun for two months. You just revise and you come out with it and that's it. But because I'd been working my whole education for university, you can kind of let loose a little bit more, which was nice. Post-university, as most of us graduates experience, the job market is very hyper-competitive, dog-eat-dog, and very much favoured towards corporate grad schemes in big cities, traditionally. You saw a lot of your friends move to London whilst you stayed in Lytham. Can you tell me about this period of your life? As you told me off air, you developed quite a lot of fear of missing out or FOMO during it, as what you were told at uni was not the reality you emerged into. Yeah, definitely. I'm now in a much nicer place mentally. I've kind of resigned to the fact that I'm at home. But thinking back to a few months ago, really, at uni, they kind of drill it into you that like, you've got this amazing degree, you've worked really hard, like you're going to go off and do amazing sparkly things. And you kind of come out and realise that you are in a long line of graduates who have 
amazing sparkly degrees and there's not really that much that makes you stand out and I think the fact that graduates aren't really told that they just have to kind of figure it out for a bit it was actually hard I'm not going to pretend like it's not hard and I know that people are dealing with much worse than that but it was really difficult coming home and kind of everybody going on these grad schemes or you know people were planning on going traveling before COVID and things and kind of just being sat in my bedroom that I did my A-levels in, wondering if it ever actually happened or if I just completely dreamed up the last three years. Yeah, there was definitely fear of missing out at the start. Not anymore because I've realized I'm not really missing out on anything because nobody's doing anything. But kind of having that fear that I won't ever make it, I won't ever kind of get out and move out. And I know now that I will and it's just a process, but there was definitely a few months of panic of trying to explain to people why you're still at home and kind of what you're doing there. You wrote a tweet during this period of unemployment post-uni, which we all go through, and it's important to stress the listeners that every post-grad person will largely go through a period of unemployment at some point. You said in this tweet, quote, tomorrow I start my new part-time job at a local supermarket. I'll still be working to land my first publishing role, but doing this whilst unemployed just wasn't doable for me long-term. I'm excited to try something new and have a routine after some hard months, end quote. Given the stigma there is around being unemployed for any period of time, did you have to build yourself up to write that tweet? And how gratifying was it to get the response you did? I don't think I had to build myself up to actually write the tweet. I hadn't previously really said that I was unemployed online before. In my head, my full-time position was actively looking for a publishing role, which to me, I didn't want to say I was unemployed. I, you know, I was trying to get employed, completely different things in my head. But I was unemployed. I didn't have a job. And getting so many rejections, I was narrowly going down one path and trying to get one specific job in publishing that when I actually kind of broadened my horizons and just thought, right, let's change the strategy. We're clearly not going to get a job in London anytime soon. Let's get a part-time job. On your days off, you can do your side projects. You can apply for jobs. As soon as I kind of did that, it felt like my kind of paths opened up a little bit more. And getting that supermarket job was actually a really positive thing for me. And I did feel like I wanted to celebrate the tiny achievement that it was. So tweeting it, it was hard because it was kind of scattered among everybody else's. Oh, I've just got a job in publishing or I've just got a job at the BBC or anything like that. But I was really, really, really surprised to see people kind of latch onto the tweet. I just thought that the people that I follow might want to know kind of where I'm heading towards. But to get so many people replying and being so lovely about it. And hearing lots of people in creative industries have gone through similar bouts of unemployment and then casual work and part-time work. And that meant a lot to me that they don't, there were some people who were like directors of publishing companies, there are journalists, there were authors, and they've all done similar things. And it made me kind of feel like I did fit in and it wasn't just a me thing. The last part of this topic I want to discuss with you, Kate, and it's one you were keen to discuss when we spoke off air, was your recent experience of fatigue and low mood. Now, it went on for so long that you went to your GP and you were then diagnosed with an underactive thyroid. Can you tell me about this period of your life, the diagnosis, how it impacted your mental health, and then what you learned from it as well? Yeah, definitely. So the kind of whole process started probably last summer. I think it's actually been part of me my whole life, but it kind of hit a peak last summer. All I can describe it as is it felt like I had depression, but I knew I didn't have depression. 
if that makes sense. So I couldn't get out of bed. I had absolutely no energy, no motivation. I was still working. So I was working in hospitality at the time. I had absolutely no time for anybody because I feel like when anybody's ill in any circumstance, physically or mentally, like you have to kind of protect yourself and you go into like this survival mode and it's quite difficult to deal with other people when you're kind of like just trying to survive yourself but I knew I didn't have depression because I knew it was kind of not a mental thing it just made me feel mentally exhausted so I went to the GP to basically kind of get to the bottom of it and they told me that I had this underactive thyroid and kind of the symptoms of it are it makes you feel like you have depression you have no energy etc etc so it all made complete sense and they put me on medication. And yeah, my life just kind of went up from there, really. It's a lifetime thing. So I'll always have to take my medication for it. But it kind of proved to me that for me personally, and I think lots of people feel like this, physical and mental health are so intertwined. And you've got to really listen to it and kind of get to the bottom of it. Because sometimes like a mental problem might manifest itself physically, but it's actually a mental issue that you have to kind of get to grips with. Or sometimes it's the opposite way around and you've got to kind of pinpoint the cause of it and deal with it from there. And how important is self-care to you now as opposed to before this period of poor health? Yeah, it's really important. I know my limits now of kind of when I'm pushing the energy boundaries. I definitely can't do as much as what I used to do a long time ago. In a week, socialising kind of takes a lot out of me, even though I love socialising. People are like a battery and you've got to keep recharging the battery. You can't just run it low and then recharge it on the weekend. So kind of always looking after myself and checking in, making sure that everything's okay. And also if I'm going through like a, a period of high stress at the time or anything like that, kind of dealing with that and changing your lifestyle to kind of cope with it. If you had to go back and speak to that 15, 14, 16 year old Kate who was stressed and anxious about her exams, maybe worrying a bit about body image or something like that, what do you think you would say to her knowing what you do now? I would just say you'll literally be fine. I Honestly, I can't even tell myself how much I would be fine. I think I was always just so worried that the world was against me that no matter how hard I worked that it wouldn't pay off. I think I was so scared of that always. You're right that not all the time does hard work pay off and meritocracy doesn't completely exist but so far in my life my hard work has completely paid off and it's starting to go in positive ways. So I would go back and say to 14 year old self that I'm fine and I will be happy and it'll be okay. Our final topic of conversation, Kate, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include circumstances if you want, or you can exclude them depending on how you are. How would you say your mental health is at the moment? I think like everybody else, 2020 is really testing everybody. Even if, you know, you haven't struggled previously, I think it's just a really hard year to kind of get your head around not seeing people, not having like physical affection with like friends and family. It is really difficult. This week's been quite a hard one with kind of the chopping and changing of rules and regulations, which are necessary, but it's hard to kind of keep up with sometimes. I would say if I was going to put it all together, my mental health is one week really good, one week maybe not so good, but up and down. Overall, I'm okay. I'm bobbing above the waves at the moment. And if you felt comfortable saying... What mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? So I'm not actually diagnosed with any mental health conditions, 
which is great. But I do kind of get bouts of anxiety quite a lot that manifest kind of physically. So I only recently really, it's really annoying. I like clench my jaw a lot. I grind my teeth a lot. Very like bodily anxiety. And that like, you know, nervous stomach kind of all the time when you're not quite sure why it's there. Definitely get that. And kind of low mood sometimes when the world's kind of not going your way. Yeah, but I would say probably bouts of anxiety is kind of what I'm dealing with at the moment. And what age do you think you were when you first realised or became self-aware that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I would say... At school, I was very aware of like what mental health was because my friendship group was quite open about it. I have quite a few friends who are actually diagnosed with mental health conditions, which was good for kind of expanding my mind on what was mental and what was physical. But as I said before, what I'm dealing with now has probably only been the last few years, really. And because I do get kind of physical manifestations of it, it is quite difficult to kind of know where it's coming from. And to know what's causing it sometimes. Sometimes you just wake up and just not having a good day and you don't quite know what's causing it. But I'd say I've always been quite aware that it was a mental thing. Tell me a bit about the first time you had a conversation with someone about your mental health. Who was it with? What impact did it have? And did you feel like a part of you had changed or weight had been lifted or maybe you'd entered a new chapter in your life? Or did it seem fairly insignificant and normalised? As I said before, like I had a really happy childhood growing up and kind of wasn't really used to opening up about feelings like that because I didn't hadn't had those things in my life. Like my parents have had both good mental health for quite a long time. Like it wasn't really ever spoken about before. The kind of only thing that we've really had in our family that we spoke about was grief. So talking about things that maybe weren't as obvious as grief. Somebody dies and you know that the other person's going to be upset. So like with like parent separation and things, you feel a little bit trivial to talk about it. And it was really hard to talk about it. I definitely bottled things up for a long time and didn't speak to people. But I think the first chat I remember kind of opening up was with my mum when I was probably about 14 and kind of explaining like just how I felt in life really and what was stressing me out what things at school was annoying me what things about my own worries was I worried about and her listening and kind of understanding where I was coming from and and understanding that my 14 year old worries were different than her worries as a fully grown woman but were still completely valid and I remember it feeling like a huge weight off my shoulders that day and kind of we've always been open ever since then about things and I'm much more of an open person now I, I talk to people all the time about it because you have to, there's no other way. When it comes to triggers, what ones do you have and how do they affect you? So for example, it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be a social environment. What can you tell me here? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I don't think I've figured all of them out. I don't know if there's anything particular like sounds or busy social interaction. It honestly just depends on the day, I think, and kind of how I wake up and how I'm feeling. But things that I know will trigger me to feel anxious or completely stressed out will be large unexpected workloads not having enough time to do something so I'm quite a big planner and I'll kind of plan out my time but kind of deadline shifting forward is a bit like oh dear I didn't expect that at the moment this year has been things that feel out of my control that's kind of a big one I think and when it comes to the tools and methods you use to help you feel better What can you tell me here? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Okay. So as I said, I'm a huge planner. So kind of scheduling things in, writing them down, making sure I know what's going on, but also kind of scheduling in 
break times or slots where you could fit things in if things don't go to plan and suddenly things get shifted forward. That really helps me. With big workloads, breaking things into manageable chunks is a massive thing because you can't just write down this huge thing to do, kind of has to break it down into tasks. Talking to people, talking to my friends, getting it off my chest, that's a big one. And taking time out. They're like the things that I do pretty much every day. And the things that haven't worked, I'm trying to think really. I tried meditation for a bit, but I really don't think that was for me because I'm too much in my own head about it. So yeah, when people are telling you to breathe and I'm just thinking like, I've got a deadline, I've got a deadline. (laughs) Yeah, so meditation, I don't think worked for me. It's more just taking time to myself and sitting down and kind of, and that's kind of a meditation in itself, just sitting down and chilling. I'd say that's probably the one that hasn't particularly worked for me. Yeah, I agree. And closure is definitely what I need when I'm having an anxiety attack or when someone says to me, try and breathe because breathing doesn't really work for me. I need closure. Yeah, breathing just makes me aware of the fact that I'm breathing and it freaks me out a little bit. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Kate, and hopefully in a few more pods and maybe a few more years in an optimistic viewpoint. Toxic masculinity can become a very small minority and traditional masculinity cannot be, I think, derided in some quarters as it is at the moment. What does it mean to you and what examples of it as a woman have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners, whether that's sexism or something else? To me, toxic masculinity is anything that causes someone who identifies as a man to act in a certain way, to kind of be with an ideal of what a man is or what someone who identified as a male is. Literally anything. I'm trying to think of like specific examples. I've always lived in quite female dominated circles. Like my family's quite female dominated. My friendships are with females. But when I was at uni, that was probably the first time I made friends with boys, really that were actual friends and not just boyfriends of people. And I lived with six boys and kind of went down to like four by the end. And they were all lovely, but living with boys and understanding them, you can kind of see toxic masculinity kind of creeping into their lives in in ways that's unhelpful for them. Not that they were displaying it to put other people down, but in the ways that you talk about on the podcast with not being able to cry, not being able to be vulnerable and open up. Or maybe even in school as teenagers and watching a boy who might not fit in with the other boys, for example. He might be different, he might want to wear makeup or he might be openly gay and kind of watching the way that those boys would treat that boy. That is a display of toxic masculinity. It's not actually there the way that they feel, it's the way that they think that they should feel because they don't want to look like they're being friends with that person. And hopefully we're way up beyond that at this point. And hopefully boys in school don't act like that anymore. But they did when I was at school. And I think the thing with toxic masculinity is that women also can project that as well. And they can kind of expect men and boys to kind of act a certain way. And if, oh, like you can't listen to that music or you can't wear that. And I think that the thing that women... <laughs> should do and I'm not saying I do it right all the time but not hold anybody of any gender like sexual orientation to live up to any kind of expectations or archetypes and stereotypes because people are just human at the end of the day and and they don't need to follow a certain path but I think it's been so heavily ingrained into everybody's idea of gender that you've got to really like unlearn those ideals. The last part of that answer, Kate, brings me on nicely to the next question, which is about, I'm always keen to ask my female guests, 
what they think they should be doing to help the men in their life, break down toxic masculinity. Because as you said, it's not just men on men who do it, it's women on men. So is it being non-judgmental when men in their lives open up and breaking down that stigma that if men open up to women, they won't be judged, looked at as inferior? Or I think what is a big issue now, especially with the rise of Hinge and all the dating apps, is that they might be sexually discarded in the dating economy or looked at as soft. How do you think you tackle it? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. As a female with your male friends, kind of making sure that it's an open and honest and safe place for people to talk about whatever they want. Um, And kind of knowing that you kind of actively have to work harder with male friends, because I think women have kind of got used to the fact that they can open up around their friends and feel very comfortable, but men might not feel that way. And it might be that much harder to kind of let them know that you can talk to your friends that are women or even not just friends like say if it's a partner or somebody that you're dating like as you say the thought of being discarded because you feel a certain way or kind of want to be vulnerable I can definitely see how that would stop men from opening up but I think as women just understanding that men may find it harder to kind of do that so making it really obvious that there's a safe space and maybe kind of pointing out areas where there may be toxic masculinity or saying don't do that or don't say that or don't hold yourself back because of this kind of acknowledging the fact that it exists and that you're aware that it exists will help break it down there's a phrase in music culture and i guess has been used across meme culture which is the phrase catch feelings Now, I was thinking about this question the other day because it's almost looked at as a negative thing. Like if you catch feelings about someone, it's, oh, you're you're now screwed. Do you think that's a problem? I always find it really weird. So at the moment, I don't know if you're aware of this or it's just me being obsessed with TikTok, but there's like lots of things where if a guy kind of feels a certain way about his girlfriend or about a girl, he'll get called a simp, which just means he's or like you're soft, like you're doing everything for that girl and things like that. And I think that it is very strange because it puts a lot of pressure on boys to not be like that and be like with their friends. But then at the same time, they want to be like that with their partner, whoever that is. So it's like they have like a split personality about who they are around different people. And they're like different in front of their girlfriend than they are in a group of friends. Whereas to me, they can just be the same person and anybody who feels anything to anybody in your life, even just a friend, you're always going to be soft because you love them and you want to care for them. And I don't think it's soft in a bad way. I think it's soft in a tender and vulnerable way. But yeah, the whole catch feelings thing with boys is definitely, especially in a big lads group, you can see them all being like, oh, one of them's gone soft and it's not helpful at all. When I was growing up in school, Kate, I kind of call it the concept of virgin baiting, right? So this was done by boys and girls where... If you were a boy and you were called out as a virgin in a social group or like a cussing match, it was like game over. You couldn't do anything. You had no answer back, right? And there's a phenomenon at the moment where incels, right? So, I mean, let's be let's be real. Most of this pandemic has made single people incels. Let's be completely honest there. Do you think that the whole pandemic side will help make people a bit more kinder? Because it seems to be quite like a dismissive aspect to like boys you can't get any, essentially. Yeah. Well, I find it really weird that people are still somehow dating in a pandemic. Like I see people that genuinely are meeting up on dates, like when it's legal and things, you know, going for a walk. And if I was single, that would just be the last thing on my mind at the moment. Like 
you're honestly just trying to stay afloat. You're not trying to look to crack down with anybody. But definitely, I know what you mean, the kind of virgin baiting thing at school. And me and my friends were actually talking about this the other day because she's a like a young journalist and she was talking to boys about an article about being a virgin when you first go to uni. And I don't know where the obsession kind of comes from. And I think it is very much a toxic masculinity thing, especially on boys. And kind of once you hit a certain age, like, oh, like it's really embarrassing. I just think it's a very strange culture and has a lot of really complex webs behind it. And I think it's really strange and needs to be way more normalized that it's just not the be all and end all everybody (laughs) and just finally kate what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to i think having role models that kind of say if you know there's some people who don't have family or friend role models who do that and it can be quite difficult to open up if you want to if you nobody around you is so kind of having those public figures kind of opening up about it is probably really helpful for people who are wanting to open up but also trying to be a positive influence in somebody else's life so say if anybody listening kind of feels comfortable talking about vulnerable things and being open making sure that you're that positive person in somebody else's life can really help them and kind of making that safe space for them. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Kate for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I'll drop some links to where you can listen to Up North Books and follow the podcast and Kate on social media in the show notes if you want to get your fix of Northern literature. As always, thanks to everyone who's tuned in. Please, if you can, give it a share on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even TikTok if you want. It would really help us out. Tell your friends about it. Tell your work colleagues about it. And please, if you can, give us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It would really, really help us reach more people. Maybe even support the Patreon if you can. That would really help us out and really help us reach more people and take the pod to new levels basically so we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember it's always okay to vent